ReachMD XM157 presents a special series, Insights in Future Medicine. We don't often think about our sense of smell. For those interested in researching olfaction, there's much to be excited about. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rachel Hers. Dr. Hers is recognized as the world's leading expert on the psychology of smell. She is a visiting professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Brown University's Medical School and the author of a new book, The Scent of Desire. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Hurst, tell us, what is the future of smell? Well, <laughs> the future of smell, I believe, is really that it can be used in a variety of technologies where it can be put to a lot of beneficial use. One of them again, as I mentioned before, is potentially in medicine, being able to discover what chemical profiles are signified by specific diseases, particularly cancer, and maybe being able to detect them at their very earliest stages as a function of these changes in chemical profiles, and then being able to intervene with respect to treatment at very early stages, which will have a much more positive outcome in the end. Mm -hmm. And what I'm talking about by developing these chemical profiles that can be detected is what are called electronic noses. And electronic noses are basically chemical sensing systems that can be used in a variety of different capacities. And what they are is they're basically like a computer trained to recognize chemicals at certain concentrations and in certain combinations. And you can then have them monitor when something goes off or monitor what the change is. So, for instance, one of the things that this is being turned to is in food spoilage, being able to recognize when a can of tuna should be thrown out. And in fact, there is in development these tiny, tiny little sensors that can go into your tuna fish can that instead of having a date stamped on it, which may be correct, but maybe it could last for another few years or maybe it should have been thrown out six months earlier, you would have a little sensor that could actually detect when the chemicals in the tuna can had changed, which would mean that you no longer want to keep this tuna around. And in much larger application in the food industry, Electronic noses are being used in terms of detecting all different kinds of aspects of food processing, wine processing. There's a huge array within the food and beverage industry that they're being used in. The other, like I mentioned, is in medicine. Another area is in terrorism, (laughs) the fight against the war on terror. So it's interesting that from the point of view of detecting explosives, we have dogs that can do that. We can also develop electronic noses that can do that. Other animals can also be turned to in this fight, and one of them being wasps, believe it or not. Wasps? Um, Wasps have a very good chemical sensing system, essentially a sense of smell, and they can be very easily trained to respond to particular chemicals which might be indicative of explosives, for example. And what you can do, there's actually something in development called a wasp hound, and it's literally a wand that you would have waved over your suitcase, let's say at the airport, inside the wand, are a bunch of wasps flying around. And if they have associated the smell of, let's say, DNT, which is a derivative of TNT, with sweet, sugary water, which is food for them, when they smell the DNT or when they perceive the chemical there, they'll swarm to it because they think they're going to get fed. And so if you were to wave a, a wasp hound wand over a suitcase and instead of seeing the sort of random milling about that you would see, because these would be obviously hooked up to computers where you'd be able to tell what the wasps were doing inside... Instead of having their random flying around, all of a sudden they start clustering in a location over the suitcase, there's reason to open the suitcase up. So these are sort of fanciful right now and in development, but there are 
myriad different sort of possibilities at the sort of level of protection. There's also potential for developing, although this has never been successful so far, adding aroma to virtual reality experiences, to film experiences. There's lots of problems with that, but I'm not saying it's impossible. You know, there's the ideas where you could have a cell phone, which actually could pick up the smells of the place that you are in and then transmit those smells to your friends no. who are somewhere else. <laughs> so not only would you be taking a picture, let's say, of your vacation in Hawaii, but you could be sending them the smell of your vacation in Hawaii <laughs> and making them all jealous back home. So, Not so if they're with my different... family, they wouldn't want to smell it. <laughs> <laughs> so the filmmaker John Waters, didn't he try smell-o-vision? Yes, he had something. It was called Aromarama, or maybe it was Odorama. But in any case, yeah, so for the film Polyester, which starred the transvestite Divine, when you came into the theater, you were actually given a card, which was like a scratch-and-sniff card with the numbers on each of the scratch-and-sniff locations. And at certain points in the film, a number would come on the screen, and then you were supposed to scratch number six at that moment, and then it would be the smell that was supposed to be connected with the scene. Although it's a very cute gimmick, it didn't work very well because people were scratching when they shouldn't have been scratching, first of all. And also, one of the reasons why smell is actually very difficult to harness in a variety of technologies is because smell doesn't work in terms of its speed and its sort of presence the way other senses do. So in vision, we can flash something on and flash it off, and it's gone. With smell, first of all, it takes a long time, relatively speaking, for it to get to be perceived. It literally takes about a half a second between getting the smell from in front of your nose to inside your brain and registered. Whereas with vision, it's instantaneous. So the time course isn't the same. Also, you have smells kind of linger around, as everyone is well aware of. And if you are bringing in another smell, it's also going to mix a little bit with the last smell. So you're going to get this sort of cacophony of smells from what were there before, the new smell coming in. You're not necessarily timing it right with what's out there. And because, like I said before, smell is sticky, it not only sticks to your olfactory receptors, it sticks to things like paint and upholstery, mm -hmm. which would mean that if you had a movie theater that you were using mm -hmm. some kind of aroma-rama in, your walls and your chairs and other sorts of things would start to smell like an aromatherapy clinic pretty quickly, and it's not very cost-effective to be repainting the theater after every different movie is shown. So there's a lot of issues that are to do with the practicalities of olfaction itself that make these new technologies quite challenging to really develop. For those who are just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is the world's leading expert on the psychology of smell, Dr. Rachel Hers. We are discussing the future of smell. Now, Rachel, that leads me to another question. Why do some smells that most people find horrible, others of us like? You mentioned in your book you like the smell of skunk, which I can't stand. I happen to like the smell of gasoline, which most people don't like. How can the experience be so different? Well, as I've mentioned before, my premise is that we like or dislike whatever the smells are in our universe that we like or dislike as a function of how we have learned them. And so I can give you the story of why I like the smell of skunk, and it's in my book, of how when I was a little girl and first smelled skunk, it was in a very positive context. And my mother actually also said, I like the smell of skunk. And so I had never been told that this was something I shouldn't like, and so I liked it. And the example I gave you of the woman who disliked the smell of rose because the first time she smelled it at her mother's funeral is another example of this sort of how the association we have to a smell is what determines 
whether or not we like it. All the cultural differences we see, as you just mentioned, are classic examples. Food being a great scenario. So, for instance, in Asia, cheese is generally considered totally disgusting. In Europe and in Western cultures, it's anything from comfort food to, you know, extravagant indulgence, you know, instead of dessert, etc. And again, there's nothing really about the smell of cheese other than what we've learned it to be. And also what we know it is in the context, which is another thing to bring up. So if you smelled the smell that was cheese in a situation where there was no cheese in sight, you might start to have different ideas about what this cheese might be. But in the context of the cheese plate at the French restaurant, it's something entirely different. So context actually also plays a lot into whether we like something or not. What we think it is has a great deal to do with whether we like it or not. Mm. And finally, there may actually be, this is where I sort of say, but, you know, everything is learned, but... As I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about the number of genes that are expressed as pseudogenes versus functional genes in humans, and I said the number is somewhere between 350 and 400 that are actually functional in humans, well, why the number is between 350 and 400, not exactly 374, is because it seems as though there is variability between people. Some people it's 350, some people it's 375, some people it's 380, and so on. So the fact that there is a different number of functioning genes across individuals may mean that certain individuals can perceive chemicals at different intensities. And intensity is also related to perceived pleasantness. So the more intense something is, the less pleasant it is, regardless of what it is after a certain optimum. So we can see this in other senses. So you like the sound of a particular musical passage. If I were to play that really loud, you wouldn't like it. You like looking at light of a certain intensity. Staring at the sun is unpleasant. So high-intensity things in smell, in hearing, in all of our senses are aversive. If you're someone who, for instance, is very sensitive to some of the chemicals that are present in the bouquet of skunk, (laughs) (laughs) then your appreciation for it is going to be inherently less than someone who may not be able to smell it so well. So I actually may not be able to smell skunk as well as you or certain aspects of the smell of skunk as well as you, and therefore you and I are really not getting the same chemical experience when we're exposed to the smell of skunk. In addition to the fact that I have this positive association, you and I may not be completely smelling the same thing because my expressed receptors may not be either as many as yours or they may be slightly different. So in the case of you liking the smell of gasoline and other people not, there's both the fact that there may be a positive association for you and there may be also intensity differences between you and someone who really dislikes the smell. Hmm. Now, here's another question I've been wondering about. Do we smell while we're sleeping? That is a very good question. And I have found in collaboration with Mary Karskadden, one of the world's most renowned sleep experts, that you cannot smell while you are in either deep sleep, which is stage three and four, or REM sleep, dreaming sleep. You can in the very light stages Mm -hmm. of sleep. So just as you're falling asleep or stage two, you can be alerted into awakening by a strong smell that's present. But when we're in deep sleep, even very strong, and something else we haven't gotten to is the other aspect of smell, which is the feel aspect. So some smells like mint have a cool feeling to them. Other smells like gasoline have a kind of a burning feeling to them. And that quality is known as the trigeminal activation side of the chemical. And so most chemicals that we smell not only stimulate the olfactory system, they also stimulate the trigeminal system, which is all around our face and eyes. It's why we tear when we chop onions and sneeze when we smell pepper. And so odors which have 
an additional quality of being highly trigeminal can also be aversive just because the trigeminal activation, when it's high, is irritation, and functionally it becomes pain when it's very, very high. So, you know, very strong burning will be perceived as unpleasant, even if it's attached to, you know, let's say, the smell of lilac. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Leslie. It's great to be here. We've been discussing sleep and smell and the future of smell with Dr. Rachel Hers, the author of The Scent of Desire. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as we discuss Insights in Future Medicine, a special series on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.